Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today is part two of my conversation with Professor Thomas Curran talking about the culture of discontent, social media, and perfectionism. Professor Curran is a psychologist at the London School of Economics. He also wrote an amazing book called The Perfectionism Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough. What I like about this conversation is, yes, we're getting the research. Yes, we're understanding these concepts. It's also realistic because you're not going to just cancel social media. So what can we do to mitigate the effects of social media and our deficit culture while raising good humans. Don't forget to subscribe, give a five-star rating, write a little review. I love to hear from you. And of course, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. So let's get back to this conversation. As kids get older, what are the outside forces that you're seeing are impacting this perfectionism? And especially because And I love how you said it's not this individual trait, it's relational. The same thing happens with resilience. We always like pin it on if a person is resilient or not, instead of looking at the wider context of what that means. And there's so much that is a part of this. And I'm so curious what you found is impacting these kids. In particular, I'm interested in social media. There's a lot to unpack because this is <laughs> this is a really big question. And I've written a whole book on it. So the short version is this. In around the 1970s, there was what's called a supply-side revolution. And the economy moved from a kind of demand-led economy where, where people, you know, we manufacture goods to sell to consumers to a country where we exported or outsourced all that manufacturing. We became consumers. We didn't become producers. Now, that created a seismic shift in the way that our economy worked. And in order for it to continue growing, what it required of us as participants in the economy was to be feverishly addicted almost to consumption. So we need to buy new things, bigger, better, more. And the way that we're kept in this kind of state of feverish consumption is through advertising, the PR relation, you know, the PR industry and all the rest of it. And what we started to see was a lot of, you know, advertising has become billion and trillion dollar industry across across the globe. And its whole purpose, its whole purpose is to keep us in a holding pattern of discontent so that we continually purchase our way 
out of a sense of lack, a sense of deficit. Remember I talked about perfectionism being coming from a rooted deficit thinking at the very top of the podcast? Well, this is where it now starts to interlink with what's going on in broader culture because we have to be kept in a holding pattern of deficit because if we were content, then we wouldn't consume. And if we didn't consume, jobs would be lost, businesses would close, the entire fabric that holds together the whole economy and the whole society would collapse overnight. So if you understand that that's how the modern economy works and that we're participants and consumers within that modern economy that need to be held in a holding pattern of discontent, then everything else begins to fall in place. So think about the discontent we feel about how we look or how we perform or how we're or how, how unproductive we are or whatever it might be. These are things that keep us working in our jobs and we work for work's sake so that, so that essentially we, we work so that other people can work, so that the economy continues to grow. We consume so that, we, uh, so, that, so that other people have jobs, so that we can continue growing the economy. And social media just slots in very nicely as a kind of advertising device. I mean, the Instagram called their platform an advertising device. It's not a social media platform because it works on the same format, right? Like you have this idea that social media's whole purpose is to keep us discontented. It's, it's like putting ants in a jar, shaking them about and opening the lid over an array of targeted ads. I mean, this is what social media does, and this is how its algorithms work. And it's all linked to the way that our economy works, because that's a sense, so, you know, social media just works how our economy wants it to work, as a, uh, as a way of turning, uh, generating profits through consumption. And, you know, how the reason we're kept in consumption, because we don't feel like we need products to update and continually reinvent ourselves or better ourselves or whatever it might be. So for me, you know, this is a huge, huge question. And there, and there are many, many, you know, specific pathways, and I talk about them in my book, you know, social media is one, advertising, c- consumer culture is another, they're kind of interlinked, advertising started this process, social media put it on steroids, and parenting, right, like, because uh, parents respond to these pressures too and pass them on to the young people, and of course the workplace is more difficult for uh, young people too, because, you know, they need to, a lot of safeguards are gone, there's no protections anymore and insecurity is rife. And again, this is this deficit idea that if we keep people in a sense of deficit, that you might lose your job, that you might be unable to pay your bill or your mortgage or whatever it might be, you're going to continue to work, right? It's, it's keeping people in a continual state of work and consumption. That's the whole purpose of this economy. So anyway, in a, that's, a, that's, that's kind of my take on what's going on. And that's why I think young people are, you know, revealing showing and reporting high levels of perfectionism because they feel like in this economy they can never be enough and that's not an accident that's by design so and i want to hear so much more about social media specifically but i also want people to read your book (laughs) and we'll put the link in the show notes so that they can really dive into this but what i'm curious about is as kids are embarking on their you know their their social media relationship. And it usually, the typical trajectory is like, I want it because that's how my friends are communicating. Like they don't really text as much anymore. They DM and they do, I'm going to, I sound 100, but they communicate on Snapchat, right? So they're planning, they're all going to do something. That's how they communicate. So when you don't allow your kid to have it, and I say this as a person whose kids have complained 
a lot, although eventually I, I gave in for my older daughter, because you want them to also be part of the culture they're being raised in and be part of the social world so that they can thrive socially and feel good. And the crazy conundrum is that part of how they can thrive and feel good is to participate. And part of why they will feel awful is by participating. So it starts typically with like, oh, I'm just communicating this way. Mm. And then it turns to, you know, I, I saw the most, I, I was like trying to observe this almost like on Safari, but I was watching a bunch of kids doing a new social media app called Be Real, where I guess the premise was meant to say, we're just being real right now, like to hell with all this nonsense, false stuff, except none of them, not one of the kids didn't retake their picture four times so that it was perfect. So be real for those who are not familiar with it. Every 24 hours at a certain point with no warning, it says like, now's the time to take a picture of exactly where you are. And it does a 360 degree view. And the premise, I guess, is that we're not going to be fake. There's, you're going to see everything. This is who I am and this is where I am. And I'm not curating it, except they were still curating it. So I'm just curious, given that this is the reality, how can we talk about it? What do we know are just like really bad habits and how can we make the kind of the best of it? It's such a good question. And actually like it's an impossible conundrum for parents because, you know, the social media has become the de facto means of communication for young people. And actually like in the beginning, it was really good. Facebook was a genuine social media network in the truest sense of that word, in the sense that it brought people together to enrich offline relationships. So you used to have this thing called tagging, you used to be able to organize groups and events, you used to basically tag your friends in the most embarrassing pictures, and it was all a great laugh, and it was all really fun. And you used to log on with a sense of trepidation about, oh my goodness, what on earth have I been tagged in this time? Now young people fear the opposite. If they don't get any attention, it's a real big problem, right? That that actually like they need the likes, they need the shares. These are kind of like the little tokens of validation, I suppose, that that clear the deficit of self-esteem in their checking accounts for self-esteem. You know, it's just kind of I need, you know, I have a I have a deficit in the way I feel about myself. So I'm gonna go on social media to to feel better. And and now, because it's such a huge uh, industry and because it's everywhere and all young people use it and it's their means of connection, there isn't really any escape. So there are just really key messages that I think that need to be really impressed on young people from the get-go of social media. The first is education and awareness. This is how this thing works, okay? That None of it's real. It's a scrambled reality of photogenic perfection, and that's how it's created and that's what you're going to see. So the readiness for that experience is so, so important. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be affected, but it does mean that their awareness is, is heightened in, in the sense that, you know, this is a artificial platform. And the second is that the social element of social media is something that is fundamentally good and should be retained. And therefore, if you can keep, if you can encourage young people to use it for that purpose, right, to interact with friends, to build networks of shared experiences and bring them together on things that are meaningful to them. Again, nothing wrong with that at all. And it's a very positive way to use these things. 
provided, of course, that they also enrich offline relationships too. So that those relationships aren't just held online, that they also take place offline too. And that social media is used as almost kind of a lubricant for off- offline relationships rather than what social media wants us to do. And this to keep us online 24-7 because that creates a lot of social disconnection and loneliness. So again, it's about impressing on young people the importance of these tools are really great if they're used and channeled in the right direction. But if we allow it to become sucked in and, and become reliant on them for self-esteem and and, uh, shut them and let them shut us off from the world, then that's when they become problematic. So you kind of have to fight against what the social media platforms are themselves trying to get you to do. But it doesn't mean you can't do that. Uh, and it doesn't mean with a great deal of patience and education and chatting and just talking openly with young people that it's uh, that it's something that we can't we can't achieve. I, I strongly believe that you know young, young people are very smart. They fill me with so much hope. They understand. Like, they are the most perceived generation when it comes to consumer culture, particularly with social media. And yet they still, I don't know how, but they still are able to ask the right questions, and they still can come to the correct answers. So it, it, you know, and this it doesn't. They do astound me sometimes, and I think they understand better than we think they understand what's really happening in social media. So it's a challenge, but I think there's a lot of room for optimism too. If you're inclined, if you're noticing that that seems to be happening with social media, that that your child's response is bolstering the effects of whatever their existing perfectionistic tendencies are, mm. is it the same thing? Like, let's keep, we can keep doing this. Well, I guess I just want to know, what you've seen it's the same thing with with education right it's the same thing with grades and and school reports and all the rest of it like if you can you know there's there's healthy and unhealthy ways of using these things and if you can see that there's become an over-reliance on social media that that it's having a negative emotional impact on young people's lives and it's taking up a lot of their time and taking away time from real world relationships and interactions with the real world then of course they these are the times to intervene. These are the times to have a conversation and open up about, you know, what social media is and how it's not real and all those sorts of discussions that are really, really important to have with young people. Um, so I, I think, again, it's all about, it's all about identifying the warning signs, like the red flags where there's the usage is turning over into something that's problematic because if young people are using it, you know, as a tool to interact with, with others and, uh, you, you're not seeing any sort of negative emotional pro- problematic use, then again, it's like, you know, young people who shoot for high, high standards and enjoy their learning. There's no, no, no problem. Don't worry. It, but, it, but it can be a problem. And if you see, if you can see it start to become a problem, then it's always important to talk. I'm going to take a little break so I can tell you about my sponsor. You know, I love KiwiCo. KiwiCo knows a thing or two about delivering fun for all ages, and they're here to help you. With a KiwiCo subscription, you're giving so much more than a toy. There's a season of discovery and experience delivered straight to your door, and each box is kid-approved by a crew of kid testers to ensure that they're age-appropriate and seriously fun. So when you want to play with your kids, but you kind of also want to do something else and you kind of also don't want them watching TV, highly recommend KiwiCo because everything comes in the box, all the materials, you can sit and parallel play with them while they do something very cool and educational and you do something very relaxing. Or 
you can join them in the fun, but not have to come up with something that you want to do and go shopping for all the materials. It's just a win-win. And kids get excited because each box features new projects every month. So they're discovering the science of magic, engineering, and making a domino machine. Whatever it is, it's a blast. You cannot believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. I mean, I have my kids do it because I love trying out products to make sure that I can actually speak to them. And they're teenagers and they made a domino machine. And the holidays are coming up. Give awesome this holiday season with KiwiCo. Get your first month of any crate line free at kiwico.com slash humans. That's your first month free at kiwico.com slash humans. I sort of want to talk about gender a little bit and perfectionism and the interaction between social media, perfectionism, and gender. Have you found that there is a difference? And I know that gender is a tricky one. It is a tricky one. It is a tricky one. And the data isn't strong, so it's really difficult to say one way or the other. But we've done a few studies. And did a study a couple of years ago with adolescent girls. Uh, And we found some really difficult findings, actually. One of the things we were interested to know is what's the interaction between perfectionism and social media use? So does perfectionism amplify negative experience within social media? So we uh, asked young people on four occasions, you know, just over the course of a week, you know, did you use social media? And uh, did you compare yourself with anyone on social media? And the vast majority of young people in our, in our study said yes. And then we asked, well, okay, so how do you feel like you compared? Much better, much worse. This was the first really shocking finding from that work that the vast majority, over 85% of our samples said that they compared much worse. And, and that, that was really oh, sobering, actually, to, to just, I mean, you yeah. know, just, just to receive that data. Wow, that was, that was quite a moment for us as a research team. And then we did some follow-up analysis and we added perfectionism into the model and we were interested to know, okay, so does perfectionism amplify? Does it accentuate the negative impact of those comparisons on their body appreciation and on the uh, depressed mood? May I interrupt? I'm so sorry. Just to clarify, when you say that, is that kind of like saying the diagnosis of perfectionism, like the trait, does that amplify it? So if child one or teen one is rates highly as a perfectionist and is using social media, is their score more likely to be that, that it was amplified, that, that Mm. the feeling of deficit was worse for them? Absolutely. However, we treat perfectionism as a spectrum. So instead of uh, non-perfectionist or perfectionist, sort of a dichotomous split, what we do is we measure it on a, on a Likert scale. So from low to high. So some people are in the middle, okay. some people are high, some people are low. And what we found in that study was exactly what you just said. So if you score higher on that spectrum of perfectionism, then your response to that negative social comparison is going to be amplified. It's going to be heightened. This is that aggressive vulnerability that we talked about was built into perfectionism. When you're, when you encounter stress or when you encounter negative comparisons with other people, then the knock on effect on your mood and your body appreciation in this case, in this study is much more heightened. So you feel much worse about your body in that situation. You feel much more depressed in that situation than if you scored lower on perfectionism. 
So we, we're, we're seeing two things here. This was in the sample of girls. So we don't know the same patterns are true in boys, but we would surmise based on theory and research that there's probably going to be elevated effects and, and gender effects that are going to amplify those relationships even further. But we don't know, so it's difficult to say. But in this piece of research, what we found was that young girls do feel like they don't compare favorably to uh, people on social media. That's bad enough. But if they're higher on perfectionism, then the effects, the knock-on effects of those negative comparisons are, are much more heightened than if they're lower on perfectionism. So uh, there's a definite evidence there to suggest that perfection has a massive impact on well-being in, in social media, particularly among young girls. And what were the effects that you looked at? So the effects that we looked at were on two things, uh, depressed mood and body appreciation, because we were interested to know, particularly around mental health, how 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 do people's how do young people's mood is impacted by these these platforms? But we're also interested to know on a on a body image basis as well. You know, how do people feel about themselves and about their bodies within this platform? Because so, it's quite a visual platform, right? And you know, so Instagram in particular is is about photogenic ideas of perfect lives, lifestyles, fitness, body rituals. You know, all the rest of it. And, and so those are the effects you're interested in. And as I said, both of those things were amplified the more young people reported high levels of perfection. It's such a, here's another conundrum that I think about. You want to explain the bodies on social media are different because you can make them look more perfect because of technology. But in the explaining of it or even highlighting it. It was like the Dove ad. I don't know if they had that in the UK, but there was like a Dove ad of the real women. And it was, everybody was like, they're so great because they had real bodies of all different shapes and sizes. But ultimately it was still objectifying and focusing on bodies, right? So whether it's good or bad, if you have in your mind that people are judging your body, that just further acknowledges as somebody's explaining to you, hey, this is a false image. This is a real image. Look at all these other bodies. All bodies are beautiful. But there was something in that message that was still like, oh, so that's the not as attractive body that's more realistic. And we're getting a pat on the back for showing it. And we're all focusing on it as body. And so I'm always torn about how to intervene when you're talking to your kids when it comes to this, because again, the conversation is important, educating them is important, but how much ends up being a fixation on the exact topic that you wanted to remove from their concept of being like, you are not an object. Your body is an instrument, not an object. So why am I now spending so much time focusing on that? And why is social media on the other hand, how else will they know that this is not realistic. Yeah, and and this is the thing about our economy as well. Like, it's got a remarkable habit of co-opting what are ostensibly countercultural trends into vehicles for profit. And I'm not having a go at Duff here. I'm sure that they had very good intentions in that promotion. Absolutely, promotion. absolutely. But you, but you're, you're, you know, what you're saying is true. It doesn't eradicate the fixation on the body which is ultimately the issue uh, for young people, particularly in these kind of visual forms of social media and um, where, you know, there's kind of this photogenic sense of, you know, needing to look and appear perfect, you know, however or whatever the ideal of perfect might be in people's mind's eyes. And that's very different from person to person. 
I think for me, like particularly talking to young people, one of the things that social media makes it impossible to do is because of the way that it scrambles reality is accept that in the end, we're just human. And that for me is so, so important because when we talk about perfectionism, we're fixated on the sense that we must be perfect, but to be perfect is, is inhuman. Like nobody is perfect. We're all fallible. We're all flawed. We're going to fail more times than we succeed. And we all have our own, you know, because that's what makes us unique. Uh, you know, if we were to just be perfect, it would be a very boring place to live because everybody would be the same. And so communicating to young people that actually, you know, imperfection is, is what it means to be human. Uh, you know, there's something fundamentally enlivening about our imperfections. They're not things to hide and conceal or worry about or objectify, but actually they're, they're things that, that make us us. And social media completely, completely blocks that kind of humanizing essence of our, what, it, what it means to be us by its, you know, 24-7 bombardment of images of how we should look and how we should appear. So I think for me, again, it's about conversations. I you know, there is no kind of one-size-fits-all remedy, but really it's about conversations with young people about what social media is, how it can be useful and, and why it makes it makes accepting the essence of us so so difficult and that actually you know acceptance is probably the biggest possible antidote to perfectionism that you can uh, that you can possibly come up with so yeah i think i think for me that's that's the big message is perfectionism heritable at all like for us the adults I work with parents so much, so I know that the first thing you want to do is be a perfect parent. <laughs> when you have a baby, you're like, what, how do I get this all right? As if there's an all right answer. And even deep into being a parent, when I feel like I need to just bounce ideas off of people that I respect, I'll go to them and I'll say, here's a situation that happened. What do you think? I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's the right move here. And I notice everybody says, well, you're the parenting expert. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, people think that there's a right answer. Yeah. <laughs> like you just, you just memorized all of the content in the world of child development and parenting that you would just know what to do all the time. And it's really incredible how often that's said to me. But I do find it interesting because parenting in and of itself as an industry yeah. is potentially feeding, you know, fueling the fire of perfectionism in parenting. So I wonder, you know, how can you support parents? How can you support children and be conscientious without fueling that fire? Absolutely. It's a great question. So in answer to your first piece, yes, there is some heritability. So it's about 30 to 40%. So if you're a perfectionist, it's likely that your child is going to have I love the perfectionism. Sorry about that, but it's uh, it is the way it is. Uh, it's the say It's certainly the case for me. My dear mother is a meticulous perfectionist, and almost certainly passed it on to myself. But that leaves plenty for the environment to explain. And and you can pr provide an environment that's anti-perfectionistic, or you can provide one that's incredibly perfectionistic. And it all really depends on on the way that you approach parenting and 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 the extent to which you accept. You know, you can accept imperfection that you can accept that things aren't going to go right a hundred percent of the time and actually like to to kind of to kind of target that 
it's almost an outcome of parenting that actually, you know, it's going well when things aren't going well in a way, because, because it shows that you're learning and you're, you and, and, and every child's different, right? So if you can have a formulaic yeah. plan and the minute they grow in and develop and become a person, it goes out the window because every child is different and every child has their own tendencies and their own traits. And that, you know, we tend to find parents often have to mold their parents into the child rather than the other way around. This is something that a lot of people don't, don't recognize, but it happens all the time. You know, people that have multiple children can tell you this, you know, that, that one child is so different to the other and they need different types of parenting. So again, it's targeting that flexibility and being able to be agile and flexible with the way that you raise children with, you know, guiding frameworks that are so important to you, guiding principles that are so important. You know, the idea that it's important to grow, develop, and not unafraid of mistakes, you know, allowing a certain tolerance for failure and children to get them used to the experience of not of falling short because it's going to happen a lot. And that, and that builds resilience as we talked about. So having these kind of guiding frameworks to kind of guide our parenting, you know, not setting too high expectations, being there for them, unconditional approval, providing consistency and love and support, all of these great stuff that are guiding principles, but also being aware that there's a certain flexibility that's required. There's a certain imperfection that's required in our, in our parenting, because yes, we might pass on our own perfectionism to young people through our genes, which happens. But we can we can recognize that we can be self-aware enough to understand that there's a heightened risk here so that we can try to parent in ways that mitigate to, that mitigate those tendencies from becoming encrusted as a part of our character or our, or our children's character that creates problems later down the line. So for me, flexibility and imperfection is important. Well, I find it very hopeful to hear when things are heritable and also that there is environmental influence because if you are aware of it, then you make different decisions. Mm. So I, I think it's quite heartening, even if it's, it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> like if someone's listening and they're saying, well, I'm a perfectionist. So does that mean my child has this 30 to 40% chance? And what about all this other stuff? And, oh, I have to work extra hard, but I view it quite, it's quite inspirational that we can also because we don't have to be perfect, we can have all these tendencies and still really thrive because they make us, they make us so human, including it's just what's scary, I think, is recognizing perfectionism and letting go of perfectionism because there is the piece of you, as you explained in the beginning of our conversation about yourself, there's a piece of you that thinks that that perfectionism is actually what's keeping you up. Yes. And that's so important to, you know, if there's one thing that my work does, it's to raise awareness of that very fact that we often misunderstand, we, we often mislabel perfection, we misunderstand it. We think it's something that is, is, is keeping us going, that's creating all these great outcomes, but actually at root, it's the one thing that's creating the, the the tensions that have the knock-on impact on the mental health and and things like you know our relationships and the quality of life so you know for me that's the most important thing and that carries across everything in our own lives but also in particular in the way that we parent
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.